the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Josh Pick is the Chief Investment Advisor with Aptus Wealth Management, a state-registered investment advisory firm. This program is sponsored by Aptus Wealth Management. Exposure to ideas and financial vehicles discussed should not be considered investment advice or recommendation to buy or sell financial vehicles. This information should not be considered tax or legal advice. Individuals should consult with professionals to see if any ideas expressed would fit their specific situation. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Securities can fluctuate and when redeemed may be more or less than when originally invested. Welcome to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick. Every week, Josh will teach you ways to help manage, risk, and protect your retirement income in the new economy. The primary focus at Aptus Wealth is to provide flexible planning strategies that can efficiently achieve your long-term retirement goals. This is the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick. I'm Diane Brennan. To schedule your own planning session and to learn new strategies to manage risk, call Josh at 614-364-7300. That number is 614-364-7300. Josh, let's talk about inflation. It certainly is on everyone's minds recently. What did we learn from the last stretch of high inflation in the 80s that that we can apply now? You know, obviously inflation is a little bit different today than it was in the last run. Um, You know, the last run back in 1980, inflation topped at 14.8%. And today's much different than that. You know, we have, you know, rising prices due to supply chain. We have, you know, an extended uh, global pandemic. We're more of a global economy even than we were back in the 1980s. So it's it's different. Um, We're not there yet. But also is monetary policy. Monetary policy is drastically different than it was before because of the global nature of it. So if we look at inflation now, it can, it can look like deja vu, right? But I, I guess, you know, what I'm saying is there's some things that can be done that we'll talk about maybe in a little bit more in depth here after we get over what are some things that you can do that you can apply now. Um, I remember even, you know, I was, a, I was a child of the 80s. And I remember when inflation was getting really high, you know, people had mortgage rates that were in the teens, um, you know, interest rates at the bank. You could go buy a CD that was upwards of 20 percent. But at the same time, the cost of everything was really, really high. And I remember, you know, we always used to do, uh, you know, you would you'd start messing with the thermostat at night, you know, get really cold at night, which I, I think I'm still I got a little bit of that still hung up in me and that I like to sleep when it's cold at night. But maybe it's just because we could afford to keep the heat up higher. I think, you know, there's a lot of things that can be done. You, know, you, you live in a smaller house, you control, you know, what your spending is. I guess the moral of the story here is you can't control inflation, but you can control what you do. You can control your spending. You can control whether you go buy that new car. I remember when I was growing up, people talked about how debt averse they were. Nobody wanted to have debt. And I think that most of us looked at that as, well, why would you want to have debt when you're paying 15, 16%? But I think the difference is this. It wasn't even that interest rates were so high. It was that having debt, when times get bad, create an environment where you owe a higher amount per month in outflow. For example, if you had no debt today and inflation was going up, but you only needed $2,000 or $1,500 a month to live, 
your income could probably easily accommodate that increase in inflation. However, if you took the approach that, well, why would I pay cash for it because interest is so low, which I oftentimes find people saying that, that couldn't afford to pay cash for it to begin with, they say, well, why would I use my own cash? Well, because you don't have the cash. That's why you're not using your own cash. Um, so I'm going to finance it at 1.9% or whatever it is. Well, that's still a payment. And that payment needs paid every single month. And if you have your bills coming in almost equivalent to the amount of money that you make, inflation can be a real killer for you. So I think the takeaway is in times of inflation, but before times of inflation, living reasonably conservatively. Now, that does not mean living like a pauper. I'm not telling everybody listening here to not enjoy life and not go do fun things. But having some discipline to perhaps wait on some expenditures so that you don't put yourself in a position of a large monthly requirement. Not wasting money on things you don't need. You know, do you really need that gym membership that you haven't been to for six months? Now, bear in mind, I love going to the gym. I'm not telling you to get rid of your gym membership. In times of stress, working out is very important. I get all that. But if you have things that you don't need, these reset button times, much like we saw in 0809, and I'm not suggesting that we're going to look like that, but anytime things get a little rough, it's a great time to take inventory, see what things you can cut, see what things you need, and just improve your income statement, not necessarily worry about um, you know, the balance sheet all the time. You can make improvements on the income statement as well. It just dawned on me when you said you're an 80s baby and, you know, you were conserving that. I just thought that my dad was cheap and it just hit me right now that he was going through huge inflation at the time and built a house and stuff. And yeah, he was, was just tightening his belt. That, I just, that just dawned on me. I just always thought he was cheap. And, they, <laughs> and you know, I really didn't think about the times that that just hit me. Well, yeah, I was born in the 70s, but, uh, you know, the, my formative years were in the 80s and you know, I remember uh, my father passed away in, in 91, and I remember going through his desk after he passed away as a teenager and looking at, you know, these interest rates on different things. And even then, even though I was, I was pretty young at the time, you know, looking at it going, holy good Lord. I mean, they were paying, you know, 12% interest rates on a, on a three-year arm on a mortgage. Um, it was certainly a different time. You know, we patched our jeans. We didn't just go buy new ones. And, you know, I think that in good times, it creates kind of a disposable environment. Yeah, well, this is this doesn't work anymore. I throw it away. Well, can it be fixed? Is there something wrong with it? Really wrong with it? Um, and and I saw that in my childhood years, and and you don't see it now. And I'm not suggesting that we go back to the 1980s by any means, but maybe this is a good time. Uh, and maybe I'm getting a little altruistic here, but I think it's a good time to maybe go back and look at, you know, what are some things that we can just do without that we don't really need that aren't improving our lives that we could get rid of, that would give us a, a better sense of solidarity in our, fi solidarity in our financial picture um, that don't necessarily have to do with inflation or you know, how many stocks we own or what our balance sheet looks like, but just improve our lives. And in turn, it gives us you know, a better uh, outcome even if inflation gets worse. But didn't, didn't you find in the 80s like everybody was kind of in the same situation? Now you've got to keep up with the Joneses a little bit, <laughs> so it's a little different. Uh yeah, and I, I, I don't know if I've told this story on the, on the radio show here before, but, you know, when I was in 1980, what has been, 1988, I moved from Portland, Oregon to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My father worked for the government, and we had to travel every four to six years because he was nothing super cool. He wasn't like a CIA agent or, CIA agent or anything, but 
Um, he, he renovated VA medical hospitals. So, you know, that project took about four to six years. And when I moved from Portland, Oregon to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the, the diversity in lifestyle between the West Coast and then, you know, kind of the East Coast, if you want to consider Pittsburgh the East Coast, but was dramatic. So there wasn't really, there was only keeping up with the Joneses in your demographic of your little individual locale. And now with, you know, the internet and with our global economy, you're keeping up with the Joneses on a global scale almost, but definitely on a nationwide scale. So you're right. I think there is a lot of that keeping up with the Joneses, but it's, it's very unnecessary. And that's why I said we do have some control over that. You know, unplug, get away from it and, uh, you know, control what you can in times where it seems like everything's out of control. Josh's number is 614-364-7300. That is 614-364-7300. This is the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Peck. Josh, inflation isn't the only thing we're dealing with right now. We've got supply chain issues, labor shortages, and more. What impact will these current issues have in, in the coming couple of years? Well, I think they're going to have a, a dramatic impact. And, and one, first, you know, there's typically a lag between interest rate hikes and the actual impact on the economy. So let, let's go over kind of what the Fed has as an option to help the economy. As, the, as, as uh, inflation starts growing, the Fed raises interest rates to tighten money supply, shorten demand, which could help with supply chain issues a little bit. And then that gradually brings down inflation. That's the objective of the Fed. The other thing the Fed can do is buy up treasuries and add to its balance sheet in times of trying to do economic expansion. Well, in uh, lower interest rates, obviously. So the Fed during the pandemic was lowering interest rates and buying treasuries to stimulate the economy while the government was simultaneously doing stimulus spending to the tune of, you know, call it $6 trillion over a pretty short period of time. That's a lot of money to inject in the economy. Well, while that boosted the economy, it also embedded this inflation. So now the Fed essentially has to do the exact opposite thing. But if we were to raise interest rates tomorrow, it wouldn't mean that inflation would automatically come down. You know, some argue that it takes six months, 12 months, even a couple of years for that to happen, to have that ultimate impact on the economy. But with everything that's going on in Ukraine and the supply chain issues that have occurred as a result of that, the Fed is somewhat backed into a corner where now we have a tumultuous environment with a supply chain that the Fed can't really control. And if it simultaneously raises interest rates to combat against inflation, it could throw the economy preemptively into a quicker downturn. So when we were talking, uh, you know, before I said, you know, the decisions about where the economy is going to go uh, haven't been made yet. They need to be made, but they haven't made, but they haven't been made yet. So a, a lot of us are watching, you know, how is the Fed, how are the governments going to react to all of this? Because what they end up doing could have a significant impact. So the Fed is, in my opinion, uh, and I'm certainly, you know, I'll tell you what I'm telling fact and when I'm kind of hypothesizing, I'm going to hypothesize that the Fed is not going to raise interest rates as much as we had originally anticipated, um, which could help stimulate the market a little bit. But again, we don't know what everybody's thinking about already and what's priced into the market. But I would expect that there's no way to avoid that interest rates will start climbing. I mean, they'll probably start climbing this month, if not in the months to come. But that should start to slow inflation as long as, you know, supply chain issues don't get worse, but get better. And so with uh, the feds holding interest rates down, we still have the supply chain issue. And mm -hmm. in real estate, that will allow more people to buy, but there is no inventory. Yep. So how is this getting better? 
What should the government do? Yeah, well, one, I think what we do in the way of not doing any more stimulus spending will be critical. I think, you know, arguably we did a little bit too much in the stimulus spending department. Many people believe that that stimulus spending essentially took the future few years worth of gains and brought them back into present value, meaning you threw so much money into the economy that it drove up the prices of the stock market, which both made a lot of money on paper for folks. But at the same time, that stimulus spending created an inflationary environment, and that has to kind of reset back um, so we could have a downturn in the stock market. It's going to take us a little while until we get the supply chain issue thing figured out for us to get inventory and housing, for example. Uh, it looks like, and you might know this better than I do, but it looks like we're still on about a three to four year lag on housing uh, before we get caught up. Um, when demand goes up, obviously prices go up. So you have this, this perfect storm of uh, can't raise interest rates. Interest rates are low. I have the availability of purchasing, but I have supply chain issues, lack of inventory, which drives demand, which exacerbates the problem. The Fed will have to start raising interest rates. The question is, just to what degree? And we don't know the answer to that question yet, but I think we'll start to learn some of that this month. To schedule an appointment to go through the Aptus Blueprint process, the Aptus office number is 614-364-7300. That number again is 614-364-7300. And besides this show, every Saturday, you can always join Josh every Monday. He joins Bruce Hooley to talk retirement every Monday at 12.30 p.m. right here on 98.9 The Answer. You can always find that recording at aptuswealth.com, Josh's website. It is aptus, spelled A-P-T-U-S, the word wealth.com. More with Josh Pick when we come back. We'll be back with more at the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick at 98.9 The Answer. To create a successful retirement plan in today's economy, it takes a customized, solutions-based approach. At Aptus Wealth Management, founder Josh Pick calls it the Aptus Blueprint, and it's focused on managing risk instead of chasing returns. If you're working with another advisor or simply want a second opinion, put his team to work for you. To schedule a complimentary consultation to learn more about the Aptus Blueprint process, contact Josh at 614-364-7300 or visit aptuswealth.com. There is no cost or obligation, but space is limited. To start your plan, call 614-364-7300. 7300 or visit aptuswealth.com. Besides every Saturday, you can always join Josh every Monday at 12:30 for Money Mondays with Bruce Hooley right here on 989 The Answer. And you can always find the recording at Josh's website aptuswealth.com. And to schedule an appointment to go through the Aptus Blueprint process with Josh, his phone number is 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. Zero, zero. Josh, when it comes to figuring out how much income people will need in retirement, what are the most important factors that go into the equation? Well, the easy answer is you have to understand what your household actually requires to run. So the easiest way to determine how much you will need in retirement is look at how much you're bringing into the household today and then remove things or add things that would change that, meaning the house will be paid off in a couple of years, so that's going to reduce my income need. Maybe healthcare expenses are going to be a little bit more expensive or, or whatever it might be, and that gets you to a baseline of income. And then you have to figure out how in the world am I going to generate that income. And one of the easiest sources that you would immediately point to would be things like Social Security and pension, and how much does that reduce the income that I will need beyond that. So let's say, for example, I need $5,000 a month after tax. Uh, our combined Social Security and pensions, there's going to be $3,000 a month. 
So that leaves me a shortfall of $2,000 a month. And to generate that $2,000 a month, I will use my assets or rental properties or whatever income sources I have available to me. Um, and then, you know, I have to adjust for inflation and account for taxes. Um, this can be pretty confusing once we get to the tax scenario, but a good rule of thumb that's been kind of around forever has been the 4% rule. So if you come up with a number, and let's say in our example, again, we had a $2,000 shortfall, not including taxes, uh, that would be $24,000 a year. What amount would I need gross in a pot of money to generate $24,000 a year? Well, 4% of 600,000 is 24,000. And then I need to back in obviously to how much in taxes I need. There is a lot of question though, as to whether or not this 4% rule will hold true moving forward. Because the 4% rule, it's been around forever. I mean, it, it's been around for decades and decades and decades based upon some research that said if you retire and you need to have a 25 or 30 year retirement, uh, we're gonna look at all of the time periods between the 20s all the way up through 2020 and say, would market volatility crush your ability to be able to retire and adjust for inflation? But let's think about what's happened during that time period. Well, we've had really low inflation over the past 30 or 40 years. Inflation has steadily gone down and hung really low since really the crazy 80s. Uh, it's created a, a, actually a, a boom in the bond market because interest rates just consistently went down and inflation followed. But last year, uh, or if you look at the last 12 months, inflation has been uh, higher than it's been, since, the highest it's been for probably the last 30 or 40 years. Social Security is going up by 5.9% next year, which is the highest increase in Social Security since 1982. So inflation obviously is going to have a, a bigger impact on people retiring over the next couple of years than it has had on people retiring over the last 20 years, for example. The other part of that 4% rule that it's important to note is it said to allocate 50% roughly in stocks and 50% in bonds. And the ideology behind that was bonds will uh, minimize the volatility of the stock market because bonds are not as volatile as the stock market. And fortunately, because this steadily declining interest rate since the 1980s has occurred, that's been very favorable to the bond market because bonds and interest rates are inversely proportional. So what's happened over the last 20 or 30 years is not only have you limited volatility, you've been rewarded for it because of that declining interest rate environment. Well, there's obviously some huge concern moving forward that interest rates will either remain the same or there's not really much they can do other than go up. So let's kind of circle back to the 4% rule. We have inflation that's higher than we're used to, and we have an environment where limiting volatility via the bond market is probably going to be the anchor behind the boat in the way of return. So we have what looks to be lower returns moving forward and higher inflation. So a lot of academics are starting to challenge this 4% rule. Now, I will suggest that some of their numbers seem to be pretty anecdotal to me, you know, just randomly throwing out, well, now it's 3.6 or it's 3.3. Everybody's situation is different and everybody's uh, allocation to investments, their tax situation, et cetera, is all different. So I think to just arbitrarily say there's a 4% rule that's now dead and now it's a 3.7 or the 3.3, I think is arguably just as silly as the 4% was to begin with. I think it's a great gauge, but you have to look at your individual situation. But believe me, 
if you're not doing something to mitigate the risk of market volatility moving forward and taking into account the issue that interest rates moving forward will have on the bond market, you could be uh, in for a very rude awakening if you're retiring in the next few years. doesn't mean that these things cannot be mitigated. It does not mean that this challenge cannot be taken head on and solved, but it does mean that the same old, same old for the next 10 years will not be, uh, or for the, that worked for the last 10 years will not work, at least on the surface, it does not appear that it'll work for the next 10. And Josh, how many people, I mean, this really stresses the need to talk to somebody about your situation and about your finances and if you're going to have enough for retirement. How many people go into retirement not talking to a professional and just kind of guessing and going by these percentages that don't necessarily uh, reflect their individual needs? Well, I think a lot. I mean, a whole lot don't use a professional. A whole lot are going according to this adage now that's been kind of perpetuated in our industry, which is just this this uh, concept of lifestyle funds. And lifestyle funds are, uh, you know, basically they're the number funds, meaning the 2040 fund, the 2050 fund. And they've become very, very common inside of 401k plans, thrift savings plans, et cetera. If you plan on retiring in 2050, well, just buy the 2050 fund. And that can make it a very easy solution for people. But then the question becomes, now I'm retired. Okay, well, there's no... Uh, I'm going to put my money in the 2030 fund when it's 2040 because that's when I retired. So what is very underserved in our industry is not the accumulation phase of retirement, but the distribution phase. Now I'm retired. How do I safely withdraw an income stream for the rest of my life, adjusting for inflation and making sure I don't run out? Well, it, it stands to reason that the industry spends most of its time on you leaving their money in their funds and growing them. And that's how, obviously, through fees and management, that's how people make money. But now you want to take money out of it? Well, you're actually reducing the amount of money that we make. So we don't want you to do that. So we're not going to focus any literature or any marketing or any uh, you know, advice on that end of the game. So hopefully that changes. But I think a vast majority of people probably need to either do a lot of research or find a professional to help them in that phase of their life. This is the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick. To schedule your own planning session and to learn new strategies to manage risk, give Josh a call at 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. Josh, obviously a reliable income stream is integral to retirement. But what are some of the most important things in retirement that aren't all about dollars and cents? Well, we've certainly uh, talked about this a lot, but I think, you know, one thing is being financially successful in retirement. The other thing is having a happy retirement, and those are definitely not always synonymous. Uh, and there's been a lot of studies here as of late to find out, you know, what is happy retirement or a satisfied retirement or a purpose-filled retirement? What does that even mean? But I think part of my job is helping couples determine what would make their retirement meaningful and encouraging each person to discuss that openly with the other. Because I think there's a lot of folks that end up finding out that their version of retirement is drastically different than their spouse's, and sometimes they find that out when it's too late. For example, let's say you had a couple, uh, let's use the most extreme example that I can think of. You have a couple in their 40s. They get a, a great inheritance, and they decide, you know, as a result of this inheritance, they no longer have to work, right? The American dream, 40, in and out, I'm done, I'm retired. And over the course of planning, they start talking about their perspectives on retirement. Let's say that one of them decides that they wanted to be ambitious about traveling 
and uh, they wanted to jet set the world. And the way that they were going to fund that was they're going to sell the family-owned ranch. The other person, uh, the husband, he had a completely different version. He wanted to spend his days relaxing, fly fishing on the same family ranch. If that discussion doesn't happen prior to retirement, once you're in retirement, it can become a contentious environment. So part of my job is making sure that everybody's on the same page and you know what you're going to do before you get into retirement. Or that's a time bomb just waiting to go off. So money's part of it, but it isn't all of it. Josh, how often do you find that people don't have that conversation and they get to your office and they're both on two different pages? I think not only do they not have that conversation oftentimes, but oftentimes they have that conversation, but they've never had the conversation with a third party uh, mediator, if you will. So, you know, sadly, sometimes it turns into a somewhat of an argument, but you can tell that that argument's been going on a long time. And while I'm certainly not a clinically trained, you know, mediator or, uh, you know, psychologist in these types of scenarios, oftentimes the solution is pretty easy and pretty obvious. It's just that, you know, when you dig your heels in in a relationship, sometimes it's it's hard to see the other side and find common ground. So uh, I've been very fortunate uh, to be able to help people in those types of scenarios, oftentimes in finding that middle ground. But I think more often than not, not necessarily the, there's not necessarily an argument between spouses, but there just hasn't been a lot of thought put into retirement. All we know is we don't want to keep working the job that we have, and we know that we've been constantly fed this American dream of being done with work. So we're going to do that. But we don't know what that dream entails once we're done with work. And, you know, I've sadly seen people come in months out of retirement that aren't very happy. Uh, Now, fortunately, I've seen a lot of people that come in after retirement and go, man, I really should have done that five years earlier. So, I mean, I've seen both sides. But it just takes a little bit of planning in the early on and and conversation. and, And hopefully you fall into the ladder where you're Uh, extremely happy with your decision and you live the rest of your years better than the ones prior, maybe. How often do people, you come in and say they aren't happy? Do they just think that they'll be, you know, I can't wait to retire. And then like you say, don't think about what on a day-to-day basis they're going to do to fulfill, to fulfill their lives. Yeah. I mean, I think it stands to reason. We particularly people who tend to be overachievers that can retire early, that uh, had high income generating jobs, they spent a lot of their working years working a lot. So we hear oftentimes about sacrifice and, you know, delayed gratification for the future. And, and sometimes that can cause people to work, you know, 50, 60, 70 hour weeks. Well, if you're working 70 hours a week, you haven't been spending a lot of time on things outside of work between family, et cetera. So when that's all gone, filling the time and keeping up with that pace, which I think oftentimes, you know, people say they want to, they want to slow down, but you know, you can't just bring the train to a screeching halt or oftentimes those people get very, very bored. So I think, you know, the boredom is what makes people unhappy who have historically been very high paced individuals. So you know, again, it goes down to the planning. What are you going to do? And, and I don't want to make this sound like this is, you know, retirement's awful and people shouldn't do it because, you know, 99% of the time people come in very, very happy. But it seems like as of late, I see more and more people who would prefer to have spent more time planning what they would have done rather than just pulling the ripcord. Josh's number is 614-364-7300. 614 
to schedule an appointment to go through the Aptus Blueprint process. And join Josh as he talks retirement with Bruce Hooley every Monday at 1230 p.m. right here on 98.9 The Answer. You can always find the recording at aptuswealth.com. More with Josh Pick when we come back. We'll be back with more at the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick at 98.9 The Answer. Thanks for listening to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show with Josh Pick. To schedule your complimentary customized planning session, give Josh a call at 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. This is the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick. I'm Diane Brennan. To schedule your own planning session and to learn new strategies to manage risk, call Josh at 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. Josh, with spring finally here, at least in terms of the calendar, what are some steps that people can take to do some financial spring cleaning? Well, I know, Diane, you're, you're, uh, you know, you're in Arizona, so spring isn't nearly as exciting in Arizona as it is in Ohio. <laughs> we started in December, uh, our spring. <laughs> yeah. Well, we get trapped inside for a really long period of time. It's gray. It's cold. Nobody gets to go outside. So spring is a, uh, I would argue, a monumental time in the life of an Ohioan. So here we are in Columbus, and spring's right around the corner. And it usually kind of triggers this sense of optimism, and people are outside, and they feel healthier, and the sun's shining, and everybody's happy. Um, and, you know, we think of spring cleaning and, uh, you know, cleaning out the attic or cleaning out the garage or doing those kind of things. But, you know, it's a good time since you have that kind of optimistic view to to examine a lot of things. You know, let's look at the financial piece of, of your life as well. And, you know, I kind of come up with a list. Um, and I'll try and hit, you know, I can provide these lists to clients when they come in. But I, I'll try and hit a lot of the things that we cover on the list. And And, and the first is always how can we improve the amount of money that we owe, meaning let's examine our debt. And there's obviously, we've heard there's good bets, debts and there's bad debts. And, you know, how do we get rid of the bad debts? And does it still make sense to keep the good debts? But ultimately, uh, spring should be a good time or, you know, as good a time as any uh, to sit down and say, how can I start improving my debt situation? Paying off those student loans if you still have them. Maybe that credit card that's just been kind of a monkey on your back. How do we get rid of that? And developing an approach to knock those things out. And sometimes in order to do that, the only way you're going to do it is start tracking your spending and create a budget. Um, Now, fortunately, many of us listening don't have to live by a very tight budget. And I'm not suggesting that everybody go from, I haven't been living on a budget in a really long time, and I feel fortunate for that, to clamping down and tracking every nickel and dime you spend. But really, by creating a budget, it enables you to decide how much would I be capable of saving if I did buckle down. And then off of that, pay yourself first. This is a concept, you know, there's a lot of books out there. I get, I get requests all the time. If I could read a book that would help me understand finance a little bit better, I can tell you some very basic books that teach you very little about how to invest, but a lot on the importance of, in fact, investing. You know, there's uh, books like The Richest Man in Babylon is a big one that's been around for a long period of time. Um, You know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, all these different types of books. But really what they all point to is paying yourself first. And what I mean by that is don't wait until you've spent everything to decide that now I can save. No. Create a budget and say, if I actually cared about this whole saving and retirement thing, 
I could save 10%. Then set up automated savings for that 10% and then go back to the way you were living. And I bet you will find more times than not that you don't even notice a difference. So track your spending to create that savings goal and then pay yourself first. It's important when you do this to automate always automate. I'm a huge advocate of automating. So once you, we, we examined our debt, we decided what we want to approach there, and maybe we're attacking debt first before we start increasing savings. And that's, that's okay. As long as we have a plan, we want to automate that. So I have decided that I'm going to pay off this credit card in the next 12 months. And in order to do that, I have to do it with X amount of money. Then go to that credit card and say, I want to withdraw from my checking account X amount of money every single month on X date. Don't leave it up to you. Automate it. Or I want to invest in, you know, I want to save 10% of my money towards retirement. Go to your 401k and click 10%, enter, go, submit, and do it. Automate, automate, automate. And then, you know, obviously all this hinges on, you know, we... I'm a broken record on this. It comes down to planning. So, you know, part of this should coincide with some sort of plan. And then you have to obviously track that plan. It's important to assess things. You know, uh, if you want to get stronger at the gym, you got to come up with a plan. And then you have to track whether or not it's actually working. And then make adjustments if it's not. So come up with a way to track that progress on paying down debt and investing. Also, great time. You know, here we are. We're not too far away, sadly enough, from tax time. If you've already done your taxes or you're soon to doing your taxes, once you complete those, it's a great time to go back and change the withholding levels on your paychecks. So if you're getting a $10,000 refund, tax refund, unless you can come up with a really good reason, like, you know, I wouldn't be able to save that on my own and we always use that for X, then I'm not going to judge you for that. That's fine. But you really don't want to get a giant refund back. You're, you're loaning the government money at a 0% interest rate. I would rather you, if you're getting you know, that $10,000 refund, save $800 a month into something else, particularly if it's going towards an investment and not just a savings account. And you can always go to your employer and change that withholding. Since we're talking about paying off debt and we're talking about savings mon- saving money, it's always good once a year, go check your credit report. Just see if there's anything on there that shouldn't be. Something should have been discharged. It wasn't. For example, you know, I had a family member that we have very close social security numbers and very similar initials. And all of their debt got thrown onto my credit report. And it said I had an alias, which I wish I was that exciting, but I'm not. Uh, So I had to go to the credit agencies and write a letter and, and get them all removed from my credit report. But I would not have known that had I not been proactive and actually ran a credit report. Obviously, again, getting back to that planning and assessing, now's a great time to review your investment strategy, not from a point of how much am I saving, but where am I saving it to? And does that still make sense? In other words, you know, I was 100% stocks, aggressive growth, because I set this up when I was 25, and now I'm 65, and I'm still invested the exact same way. Probably not the best strategy. Make sure at least once a year, even if you're a do-it-yourself, obviously when you come into our office, we're going to do it at least twice a year. But if you're a do-it-yourselfer and you like doing this on your own, make sure you're actually paying attention to it and reevaluating. And lastly, you know, think about establishing credit lines. Particularly, I recommend this to clients before they retire. 
it's really easy to get, you know, your house in many instances is your biggest asset. It's very easy to get a home equity line of credit, particularly when you have income. It becomes not impossible by any means, but more difficult once you retire. So if you're getting close to retirement or you're thinking about retirement, think about getting a home equity line on your home. Now, that does not mean that I'm suggesting you go take $200,000 of home equity out of your home. What I am suggesting is that you make that equity available to you for whatever reason you deem potentially necessary in the future, or it sits there, it's almost, it's just a line of credit. Think of it as a credit card that you're not using, but is at a lower interest rate than a credit card and is accessing the equity in your home. It's very inexpensive. It's not a, you know, a closing cost type issue with the bank where you're writing them a check for five grand to do it. Many instances you can do this for free and it just provides that line of credit that you could use in an emergency situation or in a situation where you feel like there's an opportunity you can't pass up. It's very quickly and readily accessible. So think about getting that done sooner rather than later as well. Josh's number is 614-364-7300, 614-364-7300. This is the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show. Josh, uh, we're talking about spring. You'd also mentioned tax season. Are there any new wrinkles that folks should have in mind as we head into this year's filing deadline next month? Yeah, COVID threw a couple of wrinkles in there that are going to make it a little bit different for, you know, particularly families than than last year. You know, just a reminder again, uh, while we didn't get as much of a delay as we did last year because of COVID, uh, we do have a little bit of a delay. It's not April 15th this year. We have some weekends and holidays. It makes it the 18th. But even in despite of the fact that, you know, the IRS is back to work and they're not uh, completely remote anymore, they've already made the warning and, and they've encouraged you know taxpayers to file as soon as possible and to file electronically because they want to minimize the effects of you know, this tax season's problems. And, and what are those problems? Well, I think, uh, you know, the complexities brought on by COVID have created a bunch of problems, meaning let's think about those stimulus checks. Let's, thinking, let's think about, you know, the, the, the fact that you could access your child tax credit early. Many people thought, oh, well, it's just a stimulus. You're just giving me free money. No, what they did was advance your child tax credit halfway through the year. So everybody gets a, cer- a certain child tax credit every year for every child rather than waiting until you file your taxes and that influencing your refund they just advanced that to you beginning in july on a monthly basis and gave you half of it and what does that mean well it means that people's refunds are probably going to be by and large smaller than what you're used to now why is that a wrinkle who cares i get the money now well remember uh, you know, some people really rely on those refunds. They get used to them. They, they are comfortable overpaying throughout the year so that they can count on. Some people use it as a get out of jail free card. You know, I, I know every year I tend to, there's always emergencies that I, that, that are unforeseen that I, I don't have the money to pay for and I have to throw it on a credit card. And if I would have tried to save the money, I would have found something better I could have spent it on. So this is kind of my forced savings plan through the deductions in my check. And then every year I get five or 6,000 bucks back as a refund, and I'm able to kind of clear that, clear that side of the column up. Well, if you took some of these stimulus, particularly the child tax credit, that could cause a smaller refund. So just know that going in. The other thing is, you know, you have to actually claim those things. And if you don't claim them, that could cause some problems. So the, just the sheer complexity of filing, if you've already always done your own taxes, 
every year and it's always super easy. Um, I'm not saying it's not going to be easy this year or unsurmountable. It's not like you can't go do your taxes on your own, but note that you do have to keep track of a few extra things. So be prepared when you're going to get your taxes done. But, you know, tax time can always be complex for others. And, um, you know, COVID, we've been talking a lot about, um, you know, over the, the last few weeks about the, the labor issues with COVID and uh, how, you know, service and staff is, is definitely diminished. Well, it's no different when it comes to tax forms, tax filings, IRS, and you getting your 1099s, et cetera. So while the IRS is saying file as soon as possible, that as soon as possible might be more difficult than we might think because there's going to be a lot of folks waiting on 1099s and K1s that should have already been received by a certain time. And I think there's probably going to be some delays there. So just know that this year might be a little more difficult than the past, but make sure you cross your T's, dot your I's. You should be in good shape. To schedule an appointment to go through the Aptus Blueprint process, Josh's number is 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. More with Josh Pick when we come back. We'll be back with more at the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick at 98.9 The Answer. To create a successful retirement plan in today's economy, it takes a customized, solutions-based approach. At Aptus Wealth Management, founder Josh Pick calls it the Aptus Blueprint, and it's focused on managing risk instead of chasing returns. If you're working with another advisor or simply want a second opinion, put his team to work for you. To schedule a complimentary consultation to learn more about the Aptus Blueprint process, contact Josh at 614-364-7300 or visit aptuswealth.com. There is no cost or obligation, but space is limited. To start your plan, call 614-364-7300. 7300 or visit aptuswealth.com. Welcome back to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick. Josh, what are the most important questions to ask when it comes to planning for long-term care in retirement? Well, I want to dispel a myth first. I, I oftentimes, when I talk to clients, they go, I'm not going into long-term care. I don't need to worry about it. It's not happening. And while you very well might be right, um, stats kind of paint you into a corner. Uh, There's about a 50-50 shot today by all accounts that all of us are going to end up in a long-term care facility. Now, that's a coin flip. That's a little stronger than it was even 10 or 15 years ago when it used to be about one in four, one in five. So the chances of us going into some sort of long-term care facility have gone up dramatically. And the costs, I actually just met with a client the other day and she asked me how much does a typical long-term care facility cost? And I've been using this number for a really long time. In, in Ohio, it's about seven or $8,000 a month. Um, but I actually looked it up. And in the United States, it's about $255 a day, which is just over $93,000 a year uh, on average to pay in a long-term care facility. Now, if you want a semi-private room or even a private room, that number just goes up. So when you think long-term care, if you want to be in your own room, which I would guess most of us would prefer if we had the choice, the number is even higher. It's a six-figure number. And that number is going up dramatically. Um, it's projected by 2030 that the cost will be between 125 and 142000 roughly per year. So the problem isn't going away. Now, the questions that I would ask is, you know, what are the costs in my area, number one? Uh, what are my options, really? You know, I know that now that we've just kind of decided that, it is a situation that we have to address. What questions do I have to ask and what are my options? Question number one, now that we know the likelihood of me going into a facility, 
how long on average am I going to be in said facility? And it used to be a lot longer than it is today. It used to be about slightly less than three-year average stay. It's only about 18 months now, so we're talking about a year and a half. And that's great because that's, um, you know, obviously we don't want to be in a long-term care facility for a long period of time, but also it's more financially uh, manageable. The unfortunate reality about that 18-month number is it's an inverse bell curve, meaning that uh, people usually go in and stay for a very short period of time or the dreaded, you know, memory ward uh, or that wing of the particular long-term care facility, think Alzheimer's, dementia, et cetera. Those folks can be in there a long time. So the challenge in managing and the question that I would ask would be, I want to have a long-term care plan. I don't want to spend my entire living funding it, uh, but I want to make sure that I have all the options available possible. I want to address as much as I possibly can without sacrificing my retirement, but I want to make sure that I can pay for home care as opposed to going into a facility. I want to make sure that um, if I go into a facility and I leave and then go back in, is that also covered? I want to make sure that I can pick whatever facility I want to go to. I don't want to turn into a debt collector, meaning I go into a facility and they tell me that I have to pay $8,000 this month. I pay the $8,000 and then I have to go back to an insurance company to justify the $8,000 that I spent. I want a policy that just the second that I am deemed unable to live on my own and I qualify by most long-term care policies, by the way, qualify by you, by you not being able to do two of six activities of daily living. Once I hit that threshold, I just want you to start paying me. Um, and also, how do trusts incorporate in all this? I guess my, my point is, one of the questions I should ask for long-term care planning is, what is the difference between me utilizing trust work and attorneys versus getting a traditional long-term care policy versus getting a hybrid policy and I want to make sure that I don't have to wrestle with an insurance company if I get any of those policies to get myself paid, regardless of whether or not I'm in a traditional long-term care facility or I'm getting home health care. Is there a policy that you can pay into in case you need long-term health care? And if you don't, you get the money back. Yeah, I mean, that's really the, the, the kind of new way of handling long-term care. I hate to use the word new because it's been around for the better part of a decade, but it is not traditional long-term care. It's called a hybrid policy. And that hybrid policy solves a lot of the problems that people hate about traditional long-term care. The problem with traditional long-term care is I pay into it. I pay a premium every single year. And that premium can go up. So in other words, if the insurance company says, you know, we're paying out more than we thought we were going to, much like auto insurance, we're going to raise your premium. And you have no cost control over that. And then I can pay in for my whole life and never go into a facility and the insurance company doesn't even have the, uh, the couth to send me a thank you letter for paying all my premiums and not getting a darn thing out of it. I literally just threw them down the drain. A hybrid policy, on the other hand, is a life insurance policy with long-term care benefits. Now, don't think life insurance policy in the terms of, I really want to buy this great life insurance policy because if something happens to me, I want to take care of my family. So I'm really leveraging the amount of money that I put in, meaning I put in $5,000 a year and get a million dollars of the benefit. That's not the case at all. Think about putting in $100,000 one time, and my death benefit on my life insurance policy is only maybe $150,000. So it's not great. But in the event that I go into a long-term care facility, let's say for argument's sake, you had $500,000 worth of long-term care benefit. Now, I'm just spitballing these numbers from the hip. These are not a real policy, to be clear. But the numbers uh, 
paint the picture for us. So I'm taking $100,000 that uh, maybe is sitting in a cash checking account. I have that money because it makes me feel good. It's my safety net. I put that money into a policy that gives me $150,000 death benefit. So if I pass away today, somebody gets 150 grand. Well, that's better than 100. But if I go to a long-term care facility, I have leveraged those dollars dramatically for the purposes of long-term care. But some of those policies even have an additional value, and that is something called return of premium. Meaning if at any point I decide I want to change my mind, I can get a significant ma- amount, even perhaps the full $100,000 back that I put in. So I'm leveraging money that I'm using as a safety net for the purposes of long-term care. Now, did it solve all those problems? And yes, you can annual pay that as well. But did it solve all those problems? Well, if I don't use it, I don't lose it. It goes to my beneficiaries. If I need it, I can get back at least a significant portion of it. And it also affords me a long-term care benefit. So hybrid policies are, quite frankly, the only ones that we really discuss in my office Um, The other concept of traditional long-term care is just a really, really difficult thing to justify uh, in today's world. And Josh's number is 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. Josh, is there a magic number to aim for when thinking about self-funding long-term health care costs? Uh, you know, there's a couple ways to look at that, you know, and I've seen a lot of arbitrary numbers out there, like it's going to cost a million five uh, in long-term care. The thing, uh, similarly, you asked me a question early on about things that financial advisors say that I disagree with. I think that's one of them. Uh, and the reason being, I hate using numbers that are so dramatic that cover all your bases that make them unfeasible for almost everybody to handle. Meaning if I told you no problem, as long as you have two and a half million dollars for the long-term care benefits, you're absolutely taken care of. The, the cost to cover that would be so insurmountable that nobody would do anything. So I think it's discouraging. In reality, I think we have to come up with a personalized plan for everybody, meaning, um, well, how much do you have in Social Security benefits? How much do you have in a potential pension? How much do you have in retirement benefits? And how are we going to utilize? In other words, if you're not married, you know, once you're in a long-term care facility, if you're not providing for anybody else, you could theoretically use 100% of your retirement savings if you weren't trying to leave an estate behind. So how much money do you have that we can allocate to long-term care? And then furthermore, what gap do we have or how much do we want to cover if we do want to leave an estate? So it's a very personalized process. So I can't answer that question specifically and say everybody should have a long-term care policy that has a $300,000 benefit. Because quite frankly, some people should not allocate resources to purchase a long-term care policy because it'll either jeopardize their retirement or they have way, they have so, many, so much in a way of assets that they don't need to leverage it if they don't want to. So it's very, very personal, but it's important that we, just like everything else that we talk about on this show, that we uncover those stones, we turn those stones over and see how it applies to you and make sure we have a plan that will work for you and do everything that you want it to do. So when you get to long-term care, if you get to that point, you know exactly what your plan entails. So this is a question that may scare people into thinking about this. What happens if you run out of money while you're in a long-term care facility? Do they just kick you out? And where do you go in America? That's a great question. Uh, So currently, Medicaid, not Medicare, Medicare pays for retirees' uh, medical benefits. Medicaid is the other side of the house that pays for individuals' medical care who cannot afford their own care. Currently, if you are broke or 
what they deem to be destitute, and there's a criteria, but I assure you it's a low number, then Medicaid picks up the tab. Unfortunately, not all facilities are Medicaid-friendly. And one of the big concerns or challenges moving forward is as baby boomers get older and older and older, and the need for some of those baby boomers to go to long-term care starts to exist, then will the facility uh, capacity that we have currently be enough to cover it? And moreover, will there be enough Medicaid-friendly facilities to cover it? And one of the worst scenarios that you could probably encounter is you have to go to a long-term care facility. Obviously, very emotional time, something that none of us wants to do, but you have to go. And you go into a facility that you really, really like, and it's working out well. You've turned that into your home. You have friends there. You know the people who are uh, helping you there in the way of nurses, et cetera. And then you run out of money, and it is not a Medicaid-friendly facility, and you have to find another facility. You're essentially getting kicked out of your home yet again. So there are some challenges that are associated with that. But it is important to note that, at least today, Medicaid is the backstop. Whether or not that can continue uh, amongst governmental spending, amongst the underfunding, Medicaid and Medicare are more underfunded than Social Security, just to give you a perspective. So how that will be handled in the future, I don't think solely relying on it is necessarily the most logical plan, but having it as part of the plan absolutely makes sense. And I'm sure that these facilities with Medicaid or Medicare are, are backed up. There's probably waiting lists. Well, I'm sure it depends on the area of the country that you're in. But, you know, also, you know, where you want to be located could be a challenge. You know, if you want to be close to your kids, but there's no medical uh, Medicaid-friendly facility that's close to your children, if you have children, um, that has any availability, well, then that's a problem. So now we're talking about the potential of moving multiple times over time to get there. Uh, it, it can just become a challenging thing. And again, I don't want to say that it's a bad approach uh, to have Medicaid cover the tab. Uh, matter of fact, you know, one of the very popular approaches is use trust work to make yourself look like you qualify for Medicaid, even though in reality um, you have more assets than is reflected on the Medicaid uh, application process. Um, that's not necessarily a bad approach, and a lot of attorneys would point you in that direction. But at the same time, you want to have multiple plans in the event of. And if you have the financial wherewithal to do it, we'll combine and incorporate and integrate all of these different plans together to give you the most options at that time. If you have questions, call Josh. His number is 614-364-7300. That is 614-364-7300. Again, you can hear Josh not only on this show, but every Monday at 1230 as he talks retirement with Bruce Hooley for Money Mondays right here on 98.9 The Answer. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We'll talk to you next week. You've been listening to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show with host Josh Pick. Josh helps guide his clients through retirement by managing risk instead of chasing returns. He calls it a blueprint, and you can get started at no cost or obligation. Give the team at Aptus Wealth a call today to schedule your consultation at 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300 or online at aptuswealth.com. That's A-P-T-U-S wealth.com. To learn strategies to manage risk in the new economy, join us again next weekend right here at 98.9 The Answer.
Any comments regarding safe and secure investments and guaranteed income streams refer only to fixed insurance products. They do not refer in any way to securities or investment advisory products. Fixed insurance and annuity product guarantees are subject to the claims paying ability of the issuing company. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.